Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Are you there? Come out from under your blanket. It'll be okay. Uh, Every angle and an update of COVID-19, what it is doing to Canada and how we are all coping. And we'll get through it. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We're going to go right now to Todd Smith, Minister of Child and Social Services, who is on the line with us now. Minister, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. My pleasure. Happy to join you. And what is the latest information you can tell us coming from government on this? Yeah, my colleague, uh, Minister Steve Clark, who's the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, and I uh, just uh, had a press conference at Queen's Park uh, unveiling a $200 million package uh, called the Social Services Relief Fund, uh, which will be available to all of the regions of the province uh, going to uh, support our municipalities and also supporting individuals at this time. So in the $200 million package, uh, there is a direct-to-individuals piece, so those who have been kind of worried about being able to pay the rent in the next uh, coming weeks here. Um, There will be immediate funding to those individuals and uh, anybody who's in the gig economy or perhaps uh, has been working part-time at a bar or a restaurant that's been closed down and have found themselves out of work at gyms or other retail outlets uh, that don't qualify for employment insurance, they can immediately go to Ontario.ca slash community, and there is a button there where they can uh, push that button and then apply for this emergency assistance that's available to those individuals. Uh, we've been working quite closely with our federal counterparts uh, on Parliament Hill, uh, and and the program uh, that was announced uh, last week by the federal government, uh, although we very much appreciate it, it might not be ready for some of these individuals to access the funding, and that's why we're bringing in this emergency assistance to individuals uh, that are really worried about paying the rent, uh, getting transportation, getting their medicine and groceries in some cases. So, again, that's Ontario.ca slash community uh, to apply for that. And then the individuals that are on OW, Ontario Works, and uh, ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program, uh, there's also discretionary funding for those individuals. We've heard from them that they've had some challenges because of COVID-19 in the community, paying for things like cleaning supplies or personal protective equipment. So there's some funding in there as well, and those individuals should contact their caseworkers to be able to access that discretionary funding. And then the other piece on the social assistance side is just ensuring that uh, we are recognizing the social distancing rules and protecting our frontline workers and their clients. And so reporting of earnings and changes in their life and in their finances that usually happens face-to-face can now happen over a computer or over the phone just to protect uh, individuals on both sides. On the, on the municipal side, Scott, I don't know if you want me to dive right into no, that. No, go ahead, keep going. There's $148 million that's available to our service providers in municipalities to help fund things like shelters, homeless shelters, and women's shelters, and also community organizations that are helping individuals get meals, um, and non-for-profits. So the way it's being rolled out is the service providers in our communities, those municipal organizations, uh, will be 
uh, putting that $148 million into the community where it's best needed to meet the need in that specific community. Um, so it's, it's a continuation of what's already happening in the Hamilton area or, or wherever region you're in. Uh, those municipal providers will be uh, funding those types of agencies, helping the people uh, that really need it and, and making sure that that money is being spent wisely. Uh, we've also entered into an agreement uh, with Feed Ontario, uh, for an $8 million agreement just to ensure that food banks across Ontario are getting the supplies and the food stuff that they need and uh, being able to ensure that they have individuals there to help people when uh, they need to pick up that food as well. So it's an $8 million announcement that we made, uh, Feed Ontario and the provincial government, just to ensure that we're meeting the need in the community. And again, uh, this funding is there to bridge individuals that may be waiting uh, for federal assistance uh, to help get them to that point so they can pay for things like their rent and transportation and, and buy groceries and medicine. So again, the, the website is ontario.ca slash community. We have heard that uh, many who have tried to obtain these services are having trouble getting them, uh, phone lines and such. Uh, anything you can tell us about how easy it is to obtain these services? Yeah, and that's what we wanted to do, is make this as simple as possible. So obviously, uh, you have to access a computer, and there are places where you can access uh, the computer. So it's it's a real simple form that's available at Ontario.ca slash community. Uh, that funding will flow immediately upon approval, and, uh, and those individuals will see that funding arrive so they can meet the needs that they have uh, right now or, or in the coming weeks. Um, and uh, the other issue is, is that uh, we do have individuals uh, working in our Ontario Works and our ODSP offices uh, that we're trying to protect as well, and we're also trying to protect the individuals. So uh, the phone lines um, are packed, as you say, but, but this funding will go a long way to help supporting those individuals in those offices meet that need in the communities as well. Uh, this will help those, because uh, we've had several emails and, and contact with, with listeners who have said they're very concerned, the frontline workers, whether it's in retail or, or some of the more, more vulnerable jobs in all of this, uh, they feel that they're being un- underrepresented, that, that people are wondering if, if anyone is paying attention to how life is for them. What do you have to say to those that may be struggling on the front lines of all of this? And yeah, may, as you mentioned, end up, you know, suffering or losing their job or, or being laid off as a result. Yeah, that's why, we, that's why we're taking this unprecedented step uh, today uh, with this $200 million fund is to help those individuals that through no fault of their own uh, find themselves out of work right now just because of uh, the shutdown of, of businesses like restaurants and bars and, and gyms and retail outlets and, uh, and, and certainly in the gig economy. Uh, you know, th- these are difficult times and, and these individuals need some help and they need some help now. Uh, the federal package that was announced last week is intended to help some of those people as well, um, but it's not going to be ready in time. So we've been working very closely with our counterparts. Uh, Minister Ahmed Hussein is the federal minister responsible for this file. Uh, my colleague, Minister Clark, and I wanted to know exactly what was coming uh, in the federal package before we were able to roll this out today. So we just want to make sure that uh, those who need the assistance uh, will be able to get it. And for all of the details, again, it's Ontario.ca slash community. Ontario.ca slash community. Minister of Child and Social Services, Todd Smith, has been with us with latest help for those who may be in the most vulnerable situations. Todd, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. 
Thank you for the time, Scott. All right. We have also heard earlier on uh, that the Canadian Olympic team will not be going uh, to the Olympics uh, in Tokyo. Also understand that uh, Australia has followed suit. They are hoping that uh, Tokyo gets postponed for a year. You think of the training and so on and so forth that must go on into this and, and, and especially leading right up to the actual event itself that any particular athlete is involved in. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Eleanor Harvey, local Olympian, took part in the 2016 Rio Games and on the line with us now. Eleanor, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by Team Canada and the decision that's not being made at this point by those in Tokyo? Um, I think it was definitely the right decision to make. Um, it was not an easy decision from from all the posts that I've seen from the Olympic Committee, but they kind of had no choice. Uh, if they hadn't done it, it was basically putting everyone's health in jeopardy instead of um, the other option, which was to say, go ahead, we'll send our athletes and we'll, we'll support this game, even though it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, Is it better to tell the athletes now as opposed to some were saying delay it till May, delay it till whenever? Uh, it, you know, either this is on or off. It's certainly long-term planning, not only from the facility standpoint, but also from the athletes. Is it better for them to know now? Yeah, I think the sooner to make that decision, the better, because um, a lot of us have, have like upcoming travel, upcoming competitions that we were getting ready for. And like you mentioned before, there's there's peaks of training that obviously had to be put to a halt. So to know now and to kind of go into this summer um, deciding how we're going to how we're going to deal with this, that the sooner that we can know, the better. So I'm glad that we found out now. Uh, you know, you've been fortunate enough to take part in this in Rio in 2016. A- any idea how those that this was their big chance and could own may only be their big chance at this kick of the can, how they must be feeling now? Yeah, so in Tokyo, or sorry, in Rio, I qualified alone. So I, I was the only uh, women's foilist there, but this time I qualified with my team. So for them, um, this was like our kind of our last hurrah, like to go at together as a team and compete together and then probably retire after so um it it changes changes. oddly enough as we're talking here eleanor we're just getting word out that the games have in fact been postponed your thoughts on this it's like official that's what i'm hearing that's what i've just got in my ear from our newsroom yeah that they've just made the announcement that uh they are postponing the games i don't believe we have any more information on it at this point but it certainly looks as if the olympics have been postponed what are your thoughts i mean it's just like a huge relief um the last the last couple hours have been a nightmare just talking with my teammates you know having our emotional reactions even though like logically understanding it was the right decision but but still feeling the pain of uh, not knowing what was going to happen. So that, that comes as great news. Are you, as an athlete, uh, I guess you're disappointed that these can't go, go on as per schedule, as we all are with various uh, elements of our life. 
But when you find that something's postponed, whether it's six months or a year, and we're just getting this information uh, right now, and uh, I'll read actually what I've got in front of me, and this is uh, this is from the BBC. Uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics to be postponed until 2021, says IOC may, uh, member. This is coming out of the BBC. It comes after the chairman of the British Olympic Association in Great Britain would be unlikely to send a team this summer. Australia, Canada have already said they will not compete in Japan on the basis of the information the IOC has postponement uh, has postponement has been decided uh, pound told USA today today uh, the parameters going forward have not been determined but the games are not going to start on July 24th that much we know um, at this point uh, they say it could come in stages as far as the information that is coming out uh, will uh, they have postponed this and now we'll begin to deal with all the ramifications of moving all of the games uh, as far as the date, not from the uh, location, but moving uh, the date. And obviously that is immense. So that must be great news for those that have spent their life doing this. Or is it, my goodness, now I have to wait another year for this, Eleanor? Uh, no, it's great news. <laughs> it's like, um, I think most people that have made the decision to dedicate their life to a sport, um, the, the, the idea that it's going to be gone, canceled, uh, is just like so much to bear that hearing that, okay, we, we, we still, it's not a waste, everything that we've done, we're still going to be able to compete, um, is, is a huge relief. Of course, the, the, the details about how we're going to approach that, everything has to change. Um, especially for a sport like fencing where you can't train alone, you need to have training partners. You, you need to be working with your coach and that's not possible. And I don't know how long it's not going to be possible for um so that's that's going to be something that we're going to have to work on but um yeah that's that's really really great news it appears that uh the uk was going to follow australia and canada and pull out and i guess once the uk pulls out uh i mean when how how do you run an olympics when 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 the countries are starting to pull out uh obviously tokyo saw the writing on the wall here and his one domino was to fall the rest would mm-hmm yeah. All right. Yeah. Eleanor Harvey's been with us, local Olympian that took part in the 2016 Rio Games. And great news is, gets to participate in 2021. Eleanor, we don't know it at this point, but at least it's good news for athletes. Congratulations. Good luck. Keep training. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, let's move on. And this news is breaking quite quickly. A potential treatment is going to be tested uh, or is being tested today in Montreal to determine whether short-term treatment will reduce the pulmonary complications with COVID-19. To talk more about all of this, jo- uh, Dr. Jean-Claude Tardif is with us, Director of the Research Center at the Montreal Heart Institute and is with us now. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. In layman terms, in layman's terms, doctor, as best you can, what exactly are you working on? How is this? How could this other drug help? Yeah, we would like uh, to show that by reducing the inflammatory response in patients, I'll explain it in a minute, with a drug called cochicine, uh, that we can reduce the risk of the uh, severe complications associated with COVID. Uh, namely hospitalization, uh, the need for uh, ventilation, mechanical ventilation, and ultimately death. And I guess the good news is we have access to this now, unlike vaccines and other things which are still in, in the research and development stage. That's correct. Vaccines in the best scenario, best case scenario, would probably be 9 to 12 months away. Uh, what we need to do now 
uh, is to try to prevent the severe complications. If we could transform a disease that can uh, kill into something that is more benign, that's the goal and we need to show it, that would obviously transform the disease. But we need to demonstrate that it works and we have, uh, you know, reasons to believe that this therapy is a good chance of working. Talk about the testing. What is the process that it now has to be to, has to be undergone now? Yes, yeah, so we're testing the drug called cochrane. It is actually an old drug uh, used to treat gout among, uh, among a number of diseases. Uh, it's a powerful anti-inflammatory uh, agent. Um, and what needs to be done is now to conduct a study of six thousand patients. Um, in uh, in state-of-the-art way, that is, comparing uh, cochicine with an inactive substance that we call a placebo, and uh, we'll see that uh, if indeed we're able to prevent the complications uh, with with the drug. And uh, I say 6,000 patients, but obviously they'll, this study will be closely monitored, and, um, and depending on, on what it shows, uh, there's an independent external group that is going to evaluate the study, and and who knows, maybe the study might be stopped prematurely uh, because uh, the effect is, is, is overwhelming. We'll, we'll have to see, and we need, we need to demonstrate that. Uh, you talked about if creating a vaccine or even any medicine to help this current virus could take nine months to a year to, to, to get to patients. What is the different process here? How, will the, will, how much quicker would this be available to patients? Well, the beauty, again, it's a big if, but if it works and we have the right study to test the hypothesis, if it works, the beauty of that, I mean, the translation into benefits to patient would be, uh, you know, instantaneous in the sense that drugs already in drug stores. We need to show that it, that it works. That is absolutely critical. Uh, but the translation into help for patients will, would be immediate. Uh, so now the goal is to rapidly recruit the 6,000 patients, um, and then we'll follow them for 30 days or maybe less, depending on the effect that we're seeing. And then as soon as we have a result, uh, we'll, we'll report, we'll report the results. Uh, you talked about this being, uh, an older medication. Uh, is this going on with other medications? Are there other medications out there that we're studying that could also be helpful with COVID-19? Well, there are a couple of, of other drugs that, that are tested. Some of them recently tested, not necessarily old drugs that, uh, in preliminary studies haven't worked against COVID, uh, so-called antiviral agents. Some of those that were tested uh, failed to have a significant impact. Now, there's another drug being tested. I think it's important I, I, I mention the name because, unfortunately, the names are similar. The, the drug that we are tested uh, testing in the study called Co-Corona, this 6,000-patient study, is Cochicine, uh, the drug that is used for gout. Now, you might have heard about another drug called Chloroquine, mm-hmm. uh, which is a drug against malaria, and, and there's some data suggesting that it would have perhaps a modest effect, modest benefit. Uh, it has a completely different uh, mode of action. Uh, and, and some studies will be done, but uh, obviously by far we're doing the, large, the largest study, 6,000 patients, with, uh, with a hypothesis that we believe make, uh, makes a lot of sense. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. It is 2.30. Going to take a quick peek at the news and more on this when we return after. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're going to play the first couple of minutes of a press conference from uh, Premier Doug Ford uh, made earlier this afternoon where he basically said uh, as of Wednesday, uh, Wednesday at midnight, uh, all non-essential uh, services, workplaces will close, leaving pharmacies, grocery stores, takeout restaurants, manufacturing, everything else that doesn't involve a social aspect, uh, hopefully open. Here's what the Premier had to say. Tomorrow, we will release the list of businesses that are permitted to stay open. We're prepared to extend this order if necessary. This was a very, very tough decision, but it is the right decision. This is not the time for half measures. This decision was not made lightly, and the gravity of this order does not escape me. But as I've said from day one, we will and we must take all steps necessary to slow the spread of COVID-19. The health and safety of every Ontarian must come first. And that's why we're taking these important steps. It means food will remain on the shelves. It means Ontarians will still have access to their medications and essential products. It means the power will still stay on and telecommunications will continue to run. But it also means that every Ontarian must do their part. If you can, please stay home. Only leave if necessary. To all the snowbirds and Canadians returning home from abroad, you must self-isolate. I repeat, you must hmm. self-isolate. All right, there is an excerpt from uh, Premier Doug Ford earlier this morning, again, uh, or this afternoon, saying that uh, Wednesday, shutting down of non-essential uh, workplaces, stores and such, pharmacies, grocery stores, takeout restaurants, manufacturing, all continue, just things that involve uh, gathering, social gathering of people, uh, trying to keep the supply chain moving, but obviously shutting it down and taking another step there uh, as far as non-essential workplaces. Don't go out unless you absolutely have to is what he's saying and an interesting comment that he made as well in this press conference is that the school year uh it looks like will not be happening april 6th the education minister is going to have more on that uh in the next couple of days but he said it's uh, unrealistic to think that the uh, schools can reopen considering where we are on uh, April 6th. Other information coming out later, uh, earlier on today, uh, the Olympics. Looks like those are going to be postponed for a year as well. All right, uh, with closing down of uh, various services, it presents other problems, which is why governments are very careful in how they do this because they don't want to create panic and hoarding scenarios. And there's a lot of great services that help our community that are centered around schools. So when schools close, uh, what happens to those services? Uh, food for Kids is still helping to give low-income uh, kids food to survive. To talk more about all of this, Lena Basford is with us, Executive Director at Food for Kids Hamilton Halton, and is on the line now. Lena, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. And actually, Scott, I'm going to be representing Ontario today because it's not just Hamilton Halton, but Niagara and Guelph and Mississauga, too, that have found themselves in the same situation. And so we've... Uh, 
uh, stepped up and are addressing the issues. That is great to hear. Tell everybody what Food for Kids is. Uh, food for Kids is a program that provides healthy food for children uh, that ha- that go home on weekends and have virtually no food to eat. So while the children receive some sort of nourishment during the school day, we found that there was a sector of children that would arrive home on Friday to virtually empty cupboards. So we created a program where volunteers package healthy food, and the key here is healthy. Uh, volunteers assemble food packages, and another set of volunteers deliver those food packages um, to schools on Friday mornings. When the child goes home on any given Friday, they simply open up their backpack and it's filled with healthy food. And how now that, obviously, now that the schools are out, this creates an issue for you. How do you continue operating the service with with that logistic gone? Absolutely. So when we uh, found out that the schools would be closed at that point, it was for three weeks. Uh, Scott, within two hours, uh, we had uh, mobilized a system to ensure that children had food. So what we're doing is we are mailing gift cards to the families of the children that normally would receive our food packages. Uh, The gift cards are $15 each. And for those families that are experiencing uh, mobility issues or illness, um, we are assembling packages and keeping safe distances and delivering food right directly to the homes of those children. So hunger doesn't take a break. Hunger can't wait. And for a child who is living in a low-income situation and a family that is struggling, uh, we needed to make sure that we would develop a system that would be immediate and responsive. And I could not be more proud of our volunteers and our uh, chapters, you know, in the areas that I mentioned earlier, Hamilton, Halton, Niagara, Mississauga, and Guelph, that have just risen to the occasion to make sure that these children, uh, through no fault of their own, have food to eat. And how will you reach these people that you would normally reach at school if there's others that would use the Food for Kids service? How do they get in touch with you to, to, to coordinate such a, a service? Well, our referrals, Scott, come from the schools themselves, and they are aware of children uh, that are experiencing uh, hunger, and they look for the indicators of hunger. These children coming to school every day without food and children who have, you know, absenteeism and ailments. So they refer children to the program. So we aren't, um, we're a small operation and we are funded through community donations or the occasional one-time grant. So we can't, uh, we don't have the infrastructure to deal with, you know, a a large scale uh, intake of of people needing our service. So the referrals come through schools. So if there is a family or a situation where they're having difficulty, then they need to get in touch with their school. And if the need is presenting, then the school will get in touch with us to uh, start that family or child on the service. And what about those who may be listening that want to help out food for kids, especially as obviously you're expanding into areas that you're unfamiliar with and, and, you know, uh, it's a new world we're living in right now. How can the rest of us help food for kids? If they access our website, uh, food for kids, that's F-O-O-D with a number four kids, K-I-D-S dot C-A. A donation, there's a donation button on our website. They can make a donation via Canada Helps, and we are distributing funds to each of those uh, chapters that I mentioned earlier uh, so that they can acquire the gift cards to get out to our families. 
All right, Lena Basford has been with us, Executive Director at Food for Kids Hamilton Halton, and of course, uh, including a lot more than that uh, these days, uh, all the way down to Niagara. Uh, while the school closures continue, a lot of uh, organizations that were based around those have not been able to keep their services going. Food for Kids is still helping to give uh, those that need it the food uh, they need to survive. Lena Basford's been with us. Lena, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this, and congratulations on all the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Scott. Truly appreciate it. We live in a wonderful community. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister this time out stressing, and and many thought he should have taken this tone, including myself, perhaps uh, a little earlier, but certainly after some of the images we saw over the course of the weekend, uh, some maybe not getting the message or some perhaps confused at what uh, the message Uh, really is. And the Prime Minister certainly clarified that today. Here's a clip. Social distancing, physical distancing, is the single best way to keep the people around you safe. What does that mean? It means keeping two meters between yourself and someone else. It means avoiding groups. It means staying home as much as possible. If you choose to ignore that advice, If you choose to get together with people or go to crowded places, you're not just putting yourself at risk, you're putting others at risk too. Your elderly relative who's in a senior's home or your friend with a pre-existing condition, our nurses and doctors on the front lines, our workers stocking shelves at a grocery store. We've all seen the pictures online of people who seem to think they're invincible. Well, you're not. Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. This is what we all need to be doing. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He is a faculty member in Human and Social Sciences and Health Policy Advisor with Wilfrid Laurier University, and he is with us now. Ahmad, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Of course, happy to speak to you again. How are you coping yourself with self-isolation and distancing and what we've all experienced over the course of the weekend? Well, thank you for asking that. I think it's tough. Uh, I have an older mother who lives in the house with me, so I'm taking care of her. I'm being extra careful not to bring anything home to her as she has an underlying health condition. But this experience makes me sympathize more and empathize with our neighbors and everybody around us who's probably going crazy right now sitting in their house the past week and especially if you have children i can imagine they're getting quite tiresome of sitting at home uh your thoughts on what the prime minister said certainly taking a much tougher tone than he did on friday absolutely i mean it was a very urgent appeal uh, i think the tone of his voice very strong and sturdy and saying social distancing must happen now so if you haven't listened before he's making it exceptionally clear that you must stay home. I think for me as a health policy expert, what I take away from that is uh, social distancing has not been working the way we wanted it so far. People are not taking it as serious as we hoped that they would. And I would say that walking in the streets of Toronto last week to take my mother to get her medication, we noticed uh, more than 30 uh, you know, kids playing soccer in, in the field. And to me, that shocked me because that says that the message about social distancing is not really resonating as well uh, so we need to do a better job of getting that message out there. Uh, 
Is it about the people not hearing the message or the message perhaps not being clear? It's too convoluted what we can and what we can't do. We're hearing conflicting, uh, you know, even between provinces. Uh, You know, I know each region and territory is different. I understand that. But I think we all know what's coming. Should there be some sort of, and many have questioned, you know, uh, whether there should be something at the federal level uh, or or just let the provinces do it uh, individually. But I, I think at the end of the day, this has led to mixed messaging. No, absolutely. Listen, I think there's going to come a time where we will sit back and reflect about what we could have done better. I think one thing we could have done better is our messaging around social distancing. And if you've been following the messaging coming out of the federal government over time, you'll notice that we started by saying, you know, 50 people or more, not allowed, stay home. Then we moved now to a much more sturdy thing of saying, don't go grab coffee with people. Don't go to the grocery store unless you need to. That message, I think, should have been clear from the beginning of what we actually mean by social distancing, what is allowed to go or not. Uh, I get a lot of questions daily from so many people asking me, hey, can I go to the store to pick up shampoo? Uh, And my answer is, is this an urgent need? And if it's not, then stay home. I think that message should have been made clearer before. And I think that's why the government now is looking at more stricter measures to enforce that. Let's get that message out now, Ahmad. Uh, two meters apart, as you said, unless it's essential. You, you give us a couple of questions that you're hearing more often and what you're saying to people. Sure. So one of the big things about social distancing, I say it's two people's length. So if numbers confuse you, then just think of yourself. There should be two people between you and the person in front of you. If you do not need the basic need, and by that I mean medications because you're on them daily, uh, bread, milk, water, eggs, basic necessities, then please remain at home. Uh, There is no uh, doubt about that messaging. This is the only way we will get ahead of this. Our numbers are exponentially increasing. It's putting everybody on high alert. And maybe the way to convey this better is to share the stories of the frontline staff. Our healthcare providers are crying for help. They're in urgent need of supplies. They have been under a lot of stress on the front line. If we care about our system to function longer and the health of our own parents and uncles and siblings who might have an underlying health condition, then remain home. That does not mean you can go to the gym. So that's one of the questions I get. That does not mean you can go see a friend for coffee. We really mean stay home. For the time being, at least, we have to take a drastic uh, action in order to see an effect uh, in the system. You talked about kids in the house. What about playgrounds? What about playing? Where can they go? You know, uh, they find out the backyard, but in, in, you know, the playground, not a good idea. Yeah, so exactly that. So they're fine in the backyard. I mean, we have to understand, too, that, you know, children can get restless and, and parents can have only so much capacity to take care of kids at home the whole entire time while dealing with their own work situation. So, yes, if you have a backyard, let your kids out, but don't invite other kids. Uh, find ways to stay in your children at home. And, and I will say this, because I've been, I have a lot of nieces and nephews that have been talking to a lot of my friends who have children. I think one of the things that we, the big messaging here is, I'm not sure when, again, we will have a situation like coronavirus where we are uh, forcing everybody to work from home and stay home. So my message is, Take advantage of that time if you're a parent. Have your children learn a new language, figure out a new hobby or a sport. That dedicated time, I'm not sure when again you will have that. You know, you bring up a very valid point. My wife and I had this discussion over the weekend, and she said something along the lines to me, um, you know, this isn't all bad. 
because there's so many things that you can't do that are the daily grind and monotony of life for whatever reason. Now you're for it's almost like being on a vacation, but being stuck in your own room. So mm-hmm. as you mentioned, there are so many other benefits to this that perhaps we're not seeing right away. Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that people are being more understanding of the need to work from home. I'm noticing it from employers everywhere. There obviously still needs to be more efforts there. But I love your example. Same with mine. I've been putting off painting a wall in my house for the past eight months uh, and finally got to it yesterday because you have that dedicated time. Uh, we've here, we, let's talk a little bit about the numbers in Ontario. And we heard that, uh, the last 24 hours, we have the, seen the largest increase in Ontario today. Is that accurate? What does that mean? And so that is the reports are, we are seeing the, the, the biggest increase in one day ever. Uh, that could be the fact that we're testing more. So just to remind the public that it's not just, we're having a crazy exponential growth, but it could be that we're getting better at testing more people. Uh, we're getting better at reporting the data, but it also primarily alerts us that social distancing must happen now and it must happen across the board. Hence, we saw the tone of our prime minister. And right now, the government is convening, talking about this, of how to get ahead of this. I mean, we have six de- deaths in Ontario, 433 cases, and the numbers are increasing. Uh, we talk about testing in the government. We know, obviously, with a, a new pandemic and such, there aren't a lot of new alternatives that are just ready at hand. And we're certainly hearing that governments are working with universities and medical uh, professions and, and such to make sure we, we, we try to find something. Um, but that being said, uh, uh, can we really get a handle on this until we can test everybody and see who is actually spreading it? So the fact is we're not testing everybody. Uh, we have a very strict criteria yeah. of who gets tested. So you have to have fever. That's because we're trying to limit uh, the resources. We have very limited right. resources, and we're trying to allocate them adequately. Uh, we heard today that there's a vaccine in development, but also that takes months and months, if not years, for that to be fully enacted in our in our community. In the meantime, it's not about getting to patient zero. So this is a question I've been getting a lot. Like, are we doing all of this so that we have the zero number of cases? We have to remind everybody that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying this whole flattening of the curve. And what that means is we will have, we'll continuously have cases, but we won't have them at a rate that is so huge that it's drowning our health system. That is the key point here to make. Uh, We will continue to see cases, but we don't want to see them where there's like a massive increase like today, for example, Ontario. Uh, what does that increase that we've seen today tell you? How concerned about that are you? Is this is this a sign that we're heading sort of to the peak of this? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. All the projections are that we are heading to the peak of this, uh, that the worst is yet to come, uh, unfortunately, uh, because I think as we urged all Canadians to come home, we saw a spike in the numbers, we're testing more. Now we almost have a case in every part of Canada, the territories included. So that's a bit dangerous because that tells us that community transmission is on the rise uh, and more so the reason why the social distancing is really must be put into place. Once we see that our healthcare system can respond to basic health needs, so God forbid tomorrow you have a heart attack and you're able to go to the hospital and get adequate care, that tells me that our system is surviving uh, because it's able to address other urgent health needs. Right now, almost all healthcare personnel has devoted their entire time and training to dealing with COVID that's not the best way to allocate our healthcare system resources. 
Uh, we talked about social distancing and, and getting out and, and, and how to do that properly and such. Uh, what happens, and, and I should have asked this earlier, but what about when you return home from being out? What is the pop proper process people should be going through? What should they be doing to make sure they're not bringing anything outside inside? Great question. That's, again, one of the most frequently asked questions to me. Uh, I say, please shower. I try to make my advice very simple to people so it's not, you know, don't go spray yourself basically with Lysol. That's not really yeah. the best way to go forward. You're going to irritate your skin and not the best use of the product. I say as soon as you get home, take off your shoes, get in the shower. Uh, and hopefully you have not been around people, right? So that if you if you went to one an errand or you went for a nice walk uh, alone or with a family member, just the two of you, then that's fine. Come home, take a shower and just like make sure that your surroundings are clean. I don't want to get people to a point of paranoia. That's not the goal here. It's about being restrictive in the same way, being scientific about the way we can get ahead of this. Should we be wearing gloves or something if we are going out? Uh, no, I think that's a bit of an extreme unless you're going to be uh, handshaking people, which is not the advice we're giving anybody, right? But if you are leaving your house, I ask everybody to please avoid touching handles, uh, doorknobs, unless you really need to. And in that case, wash your hands before and after or use an alcohol rub uh, if you don't have access to actual uh, sink and, and soap. And there's obviously other preventative measures that people were urging people to do. So maintaining at least three feet distance to you and others. Uh, avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Uh, that seems to be difficult for a lot of people because it's a habit. It's a force of habit. And then cover your mouth with your elbows if you're coughing. Is it possible to have this or be carrying it or even spread it and not even know you have it? You, you don't feel any of the symptoms whatsoever and you're just continuing on with your daily life? Yeah, Scott. So we've seen cases of that. There have been cases reported of asymptomatic. We call this asymptomatic, which all that it means is that people who have the virus but are not showing any symptoms. We've seen those numbers. They're not big. They're nothing to worry about. Uh, the concern becomes, hence why we're pushing for social distancing, is that in case you are an asymptomatic carrier, you might be okay because 81% of anybody that will get COVID-19 will be okay because there's a mild infection. But there are a certain subset of our population that if they get the virus, they will not be asymptomatic. They will have drastic health outcomes that will require hospitalization and in severe cases can lead to death. This is why even though, like, you know, the messaging about millennials, even if you're not worried because you know it's mild and you know it's not going to affect you badly, we urge you to think about people around you of older age or with underlying health conditions. And we are certainly seeing uh, evidence that this is not just uh, a virus that attacks the elderly. We're seeing evidence of this hitting millennials, are we not? Exactly, exactly. And actually the age, uh, the median age of everybody that ever got COVID-19 till now is 30 to 79 years of age. That's, that's mm. average. So that's huge. It does not discriminate against age. We've seen reports of millennials getting it in the U.S. It does not discriminate against gender. 51% of our Canadian population who got COVID-19 are male. It does not discriminate against race. So it can affect anybody. All right. Joining us has been Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member in human and social sciences and health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Your thoughts on the Prime Minister's speech today at 11.15? He, he certainly did seem to take a much stronger tone this time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was necessary, uh, given where we're at, uh, you know, where the move to social distancing a week ago uh, still, you know, we won't see the effects for another week or so. So people, I think, are beginning to get antsy uh, and, you know, they begin to get worried when there's different messages happening in different parts of the country. Uh, the idea that there is a strong and unified approach to, to dealing with the question is probably important. Is it that the message isn't getting out, or is it that the message has not been crystal clear? As you've said, we've heard various provinces doing various things. We'll talk about states of emergency in a second. But do you think people are confused or just ignorant or not getting the message? Uh, well, I think people are on many different things at the same time. So, I mean, we've had, I mean, even within Ontario, we have a certain local public health officials uh, asking why the province hasn't done more. Right, uh, mm-hmm. and then between provinces, we have very, uh, you know, different messages going out on different days, and in, in many cases, they're all getting to the same point. But with the staggering of days, what's being asked changes. And so, you know, on the one hand, you have people being confused, not really understanding what's being asked of them because they're hearing these different things. Uh, but then on the other hand, you have people sitting around and worrying, and so you know they will pick up on some difference between provinces and you know begin you know screaming why is their province not adopting the same procedure that's been done in a different place? And so, yeah, I think it it doesn't produce a kind of a calming effect and it doesn't have the result of making everyone think they're moving in the same direction. So in that sense, I think it's unhelpful. And we should mention the Premier will be speaking at 1 o'clock. We'll be going to that live. Uh, Talk about states of emergency. And we've heard what the Prime Minister said. He's trying to let the provinces handle it on on their own individual basis before he comes in and puts in, a, uh, I guess, a a blanket plan. That being said, what's involved when a province declares a state of emergency versus when the federal government does it? Uh, Well, I mean, what the state of emergency does is it... uh, allows our governments to restrain our rights in various ways, right? And so they can, you know, have things like ordering the shutting down of certain kinds of businesses or limiting our freedom to uh, interact with other people as we like, right? So what the, the, uh, the state of emergency does, I mean, it doesn't suspend the operation of the Charter of Rights, but it does empower uh, our state officials to act in various ways to, you know, for instance, close businesses or order things to happen in a way that we normally don't give them the right to do. So that, I mean, that's the main thing that it does, right? The difference between the federal and the provincial state of emergency is really about which officials have the right to do, uh, you know, these particular uh, closings or openings. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think, a less substantial feature uh, of the situation. But, I mean, declaring a national state of emergency would enable, ultimately, federal officials to do a bit more to coordinate uh, or to have a, a singularity of messages uh, across the country in terms of, you know, what's to be allowed or not allowed, and what the consequences are for people who uh, refuse to listen to, to those directives. Should we be there now? Should we be at that point already where at least there is some sort of uniform messaging here? Uh, well, I mean, I think it would be helpful. Uh, I think generally in every province there's been uh, difficulty making decisions about how much uh, ultimately the population will accept and what the population is demanding. Um, and so in many cases, there's been an unwillingness to act. So I don't know if it's necessarily the lack of uh, coordination. I mean, we have the instance, for instance, of, uh, of the video game store uh, yeah. at the end of last week. Uh, you know, and the, the Premier, I think, rightfully came out and expressed his displeasure, although the other side of it was the Premier could have also acted to close those stores before. Right. So there's these kinds of situations where, 
I mean, it's a problem there, a lack of consistency across the country in making a decision that retail should be closing down, or is it also, uh, you know, in, in specific provinces, a, a political leadership not quite being willing to, to do that? I mean, because it's a decision that has consequences in terms of capacity of businesses to operate or people to draw salaries. Well, again, at the end of the day, everybody looks to what everybody else is doing and how they're coping with all of this, which is probably what, I mean, isn't that, that's asking for advice. That's that, that's looking for uniformity, is it not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we have, uh, you know, in the current moment of, uh, you know, the Internet is we have uh, millions of, you know, sudden public health experts who are mm. trying to say, well, what's Italy doing? Uh, what what have they done in China? And I mean, we we don't really have very good information in many cases about how that really looks like at the at the level of the street, uh, you know, in particular policing and public health uh, situations. So, I mean, in in some ways, even if Canada was just speaking with one voice, we'd still have people saying, well, how come they aren't doing what was done in this other country? So, you know, some of it can't be escaped, but I do think around expectations about whether people should be staying in and is it okay to go for groceries or can you go for a walk or things like that. Uh, the lack of uniformity in Canada probably hasn't helped in, ter- in terms of people give- giving people a clear sense of what to do. Because I think we are seeing that the vast majority of Canadians uh, are making pretty significant efforts uh, in a collective uh, move to control the spread of this virus. Uh, but they're a bit frustrated when they're not entirely sure what they're meant to be doing. Right? They're making the effort, but they want to be making the proper effort and, and not the wrong one. Uh, an example, uh, an email from a listener right now. Uh, where can we go out if we go out? Are we safe in our own yard, in your backyard? Absolutely, you are safe in your own backyard. They are saying that is a great way to combat all of this uh, isolation is to, is to stay by yourself in areas like that. Uh, that being said, the Prime Minister talking to the Premiers tonight, uh, he has mentioned, what do you think is going to come of all of that? Well, I mean, usually the, pre- uh, the prime minister meeting with the premiers doesn't produce <laughs> good results except fighting. Um, but but I at least we case, seem to be on the same common cause this time. Yeah, and I think, I mean, uh, you know, to be really crass, I mean, all the premier, no premier wants to be the one who does the thing that didn't work. And, uh, you know, we, we, we do look at what's happening in different provinces and to be the one who, you know, who stands out of line and, you know, terrible things happen. So I think we have premiers who are all worried about, uh, you know, I mean, there's the deaths are starting, and the, the spread is, uh, you know, still an issue. So I think they have a lot of incentive to come up uh, with a common, uh, common approach and to try to find a way to reduce uh, the variation in terms of what provinces are doing. But probably also in some cases, uh, you know, a willingness to see a greater federal role if it, you know, reduces some of the danger that they'll be left out doing different things than the federal government is putting forward. But the federal government also has the issue that uh, they rely on the provincial governments and the provincial health agencies uh, to really deal with this uh, across the country. There's not a big public health capacity in the federal government. And so on the other side of it, the federal government can't begin doing things if, if the provinces are unable to put them into place because they're understaffed or they don't have the capacity. So. Hopefully, uh, the meeting today will be uh, a chance to improve the collaboration between the public health actors federally and provincially. Uh, House of Commons back tomorrow for an emergency sitting on all of this. What happens there? Why is this needed? Uh, Well, I think the main reason that it's needed is that the federal government is uh, going to deliver part of uh, its 
package of help to uh, the unemployed and workers out of jobs through the unemployment insurance program. Um, but that's, you know, the, the rules of that program are set in law. So if you want to make that change, you have to change the law. So I think the main thing uh, for that meeting is to try and deal with specific aspects of the federal response that will require changes in law and to find a way to, to bring them through relatively quickly. What about representation? We have a minority government here. I mean, thank goodness it appears that all uh, sides are, are rowing in the same direction here. But what about representation? Who's there? Who's at this? Uh, well, the last I saw, they were planning to have like a mini meeting of about 32 members of parliament, um, again, in a proportion to uh, the overall standings in the House. So in a way, they've tried to do a mini-parliament to not bring everyone together, um, but to bring a small group together uh, who will be able to, in a sense, organize our consent as Canadians by showing, you know, what the leaders have already said is that they're willing to uh, support the federal government in these specific measures to respond to the crisis. So we can see that play out uh, symbolically in terms of, of there being votes that, you know, represent the relative weights of the parties. So that seems to be the approach for dealing with the situation at the moment. I think from the point of view of the opposition parties, uh, the idea is that it's important that Canada come up with a, a strong uh, response. And then after, uh, you know, when, when the dust settles, questions can be asked about the quality of, of the government's response. But at this stage, second-guessing, say, the income measures probably isn't in the interest of any, uh, any of the parties there. Uh, do you anticipate any issue with this meet with this uh, session tomorrow? Will it be a technicality and we, you know, uh, throwing it in, throwing it out, getting it done, or do you think there'll be debate, there'll be conflict at all? Um, I suspect it will be mostly uh, technicality. Uh, I don't think we're at a stage where uh, the Canadian public would look that uh, fondly on any party that would uh, try to grandstand in a way. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, uh, the space for politics in Canada has been rapidly shrunk. I mean, it will grow again, but in a moment of crisis, uh, people's uh, interest in that is reduced. I mean, if parties had really important uh, questions to ask, but you know, they, they may ask questions to say, is this enough, or might you do this other thing and it would be better? But I think that's kind of the, the limit uh, of the acceptable space to be uh, discussing politics at the moment in terms of for the public interest. I mean, we saw, I think, even with the Conservative Party, some questions about do they need to cancel or delay the leadership race, mm. uh, simply because Canadians aren't in a mindset for that. And, and the, the sort of priorities of debating whether, you know, Aaron O'Toole's or Peter McKay's vision for Canada is better, it just seems irrelevant in the current moment. Uh, again, you know, in a, in a few weeks, maybe Canadians will be ready to think about that again. But at the moment, there's not a space for that. And I think people who try to get too political in this moment to pay a price for the citizenry who who say well that's not really our concern at the moment and why would you be trying to to you know foment these things for political gain at a moment when we really do need to concentrate uh on controlling this virus and its spread uh last question peter what is your view uh, your thoughts on leadership during all of this provincially federally or or, or even internationally what, what has stood out for you well i think uh, what stood out for me is, uh, you know, the extent to which our leaders are nevertheless constrained by our willingness to follow. Uh, mm. I mean, we had a moment, uh, you know, since December to really prepare for this, and my sense is that we didn't, uh, that our leaders were too afraid of, you know, 
facing the fact of what we are living at the moment, which is, you know, massive unemployment, people out of work, massive dislocation, essentially a shutting down of how uh, we normally act as a society. And so they weren't able to lead us to think about that. So some of the preparation we could have had for this, the idea that we might have to do these things that we've accepted in the past two weeks, wasn't done. I mean, I think if we had done that, we might have been better prepared in terms of our health system, in terms of the equipment we had, but also in terms of people knowing what their role is and uh, how to engage it productively uh, with less disruption. So in that sense, uh, you know, our political leaders can do some things, but when they don't sense that people are willing to follow them on, in big things, then I think they abdicate their responsibilities. So when this is done, we may ask questions of our of our premiers and our prime ministers to say, we're did they really do enough to prepare us for bad news? Or did they shy away from making the hard decisions because they thought it would pay a political price? Peter Graff has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated, and take care. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.